This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast that I briefly forgot the name of for a second there. I'm your host, Emma Grania, and this is the Won't Somebody Please Think of the Children edition. With me today, Stuart Thompson, my fellow legislative reporter. How's it going? Great. Excellent. Paula Simons. G'day, Emma. G'day, Paula. (laughs) (laughs) You make me sound more Australian than I. Some people poo-poo Australian table wines. And Graham Thompson. I'm not even going to attempt to follow that. Hello. <laughs> Hello. So today we are talking about a couple of new programs for the kids. Uh, there are a couple of them announced this week. There was a new lunch. Well, it wasn't new. It was an expanded school lunch program. Also, childcare, affordable childcare, to be more specific. We're also taking a look at some changes to disability programs in the province, including AISH and the possible creation of a new disability advocate. And then briefly, we will take a look at labour negotiations, which are going to be a huge kerfuffle for government this year. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's my Canadian impression. Oh, yeah. You <laughs> betcha. No, I think you sound like you escaped from the set of Fargo. That's yeah. how they sound in Saskatchewan. <laughs> well, yes. Uh-huh. Let's talk first about the programs for kids. Mm. Um, I don't have children, but apparently this is great. Uh, It's great for some people. It's great for a very small number of people in Alberta. Um, So this is Because they're small? Because they're children? Yeah, the kids are small. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So NEP campaign promise was universal daycare for 25 bucks a day. So everyone who wants daycare, that's all you're paying. And then some people uh, who are low income would still get existing subsidies. So that would mean that a lot of people who are on the lower end of the income spectrum would be paying nothing for daycare. Um, so the beginnings of this, um, kind of reflecting our terrible uh, financial situation in the province, is that uh, the government announced last fall a pilot program for a thousand spots, and uh, that actually that's been bumped up to thirteen hundred spots. Uh, they announced yesterday with uh, the same dollar amount for the program, which is interesting. Mm. Uh, it's ten million dollars for the program. Well, how much does it cost to watch a kid having a nap? <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, actually, nap I time. Spoke, Have some paints. There <laughs> you go. I hung around afterwards, and I was speaking to the the lady who runs the center in uh, Macaulay, where the announcement was, and she was saying, "You know what this also means is that some of my um, hardworking people here will get a small raise, and they haven't gotten one in years. Um, so, I mean, that, that, that's kind of nice that the people who have to watch all these kids get a little bit extra money. Um, but I guess the the trouble with this program is that the idea is we want a universal daycare program, something like what Quebec has, which would mean cheap daycare for all. Um, we can't afford that, even come close to affording that right now with a $10.3 billion deficit. Um so what they're doing is they're doing a pilot, which will try out. There's 22 centers across the province, uh, I think five in Edmonton, about 250 spots in Edmonton, um, that'll try out different ways of doing it, just different like you know different types of daycare with flexible hours and things like that. Um, and then they want to keep adding to that to head towards universality. But we are pretty far from universal daycare right now. And I snagged uh, Daniel Larivey, the Children's Services Minister, on the way into question period yesterday, and I said, like, 
universality like before the next election or is this just you know in our hopes and dreams <laughs> we do this someday and she said it's it's based on the finances and we in the most optimistic scenario we have balance in six years and the feds have given a little bit of extra money for daycare they i think that rachel notley said she expects 30 to 70 million dollars from the feds over 10 years so you do the math on that it's it's that's maybe you know Based That's on not numbers, a whole lot of money. it's like seven hundred more spots in the province. So it's good, but there's not a lot of it. It's not a bad thing to do a pilot. I remain ambivalent about the idea of universal, affordable daycare for everybody, as opposed to targeting the money to give subsidies to the people who need it the most. Um, day daycare is wildly expensive. It's been a long time since I've had my little one in daycare. Now I'm paying her university tuition, which is signi- <laughs> which is significantly less mm-hmm. than I paid really? for day. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, oh yeah. Dead set. Oh yeah, daycare daycare I have is cats, you can leave them at home by themselves <laughs> all day and no one calls the authorities. Daycare is so expensive that if you have two kids you might as well have a nanny. I mean that, you know, yeah. uh daycare is not a cheap thing. So uh, on the other hand, making it you know, effectively, I don't say want to say twenty five dollars a day isn't free, but I mean it. It's. I'm not sure that the best use of public resources is to give middle and upper middle class people super cheap daycare as opposed to targeting the funds to the people who need it the most. I mean, the people who really need daycare are you know uh, moms who are struggling in poverty who need who need to work, uh, moms who need to have a chance to finish high school or post-secondary. There are ways, I think, that it's more efficient economically to provide that benefit as opposed to a universal program, uh, which could distort markets in all kinds of ways. The other program targeting kids that was announced this week, Rachel Notley was playing with kids a lot this week, yeah, wasn't she? Was. she? she and, had and two think, days of playing she, with kids. She's, you know, she's one of those rare politicians who actually looks good in the photo op when she's with the kids. <laughs> she like, genuinely when she, when she's it. When she's with kids and dogs, it does not look forced. Exactly. Puppies last week. <laughs> Puppies last week. week, kids this week. It's been, a good, it's been a good week for the Notley photo op. And actually, last night as I was leaving the office, a little bit later, um, it was a busy day, uh, I turned the corner and ran into this massive dog. And I was like, what the hell? Was it that big black fluffy one? It was kind of brown and uh, black. And then it was the premier walking her dog. And we had... We had kind of an awkward, she went, oh, hey. (laughs) (laughs) And I went, ugh. And then I turned the wrong way because I got... Flummoxed. Yeah, I got flummoxed because it was a bad interaction. And then I went the wrong way towards my car. So I couldn't just turn around and walk (laughs) back to my car. I had to do a big loop to not look like I'd done that. Yeah. Nobody tells you this stuff happens when you work at the legislature. I have at least one in awkward interaction with a minister every day. <laughs> so the other program, the other thing that was announced was an expansion of the um, school lunch program. Um, yeah, n- nutrition yes, program, right. they call it. Sorry, because God for, good, God, goodness for fan that we should give people a free lunch. We're giving them nutrition. <laughs> Even if they are six. Make them earn it themselves. <laughs> Put in a good hard work at the coal mines, kid. Earn your beef tacos. Yeah, so this is an expansion of a a pilot program, which apparently went quite well. I actually used to volunteer at a school breakfast program in Newfoundland, and a lot of kids used to come to school without having had breakfast. Poor little buggers. So I used to make them toast with cheese whiz on it, which I wasn't sure was, like, overly nutritious anyway, 
but um, probably better than having nothing at all in your no, I mean, we have a whole patchwork of programs here in Edmonton where I know more specifically about Edmonton, you know. So there are a certain number of schools that are the super high-need schools who are funded through the Edmonton Community Foundation, and they get the, they get basically hospital meals. I've always felt slightly sorry for them. Um, and then the Edmonton Public School Board has its own program called Food for Thought, which was funded by local um, philanthropists, which provides food to people who are like kids who are in the next not quite so poor schools. And then there are ad hoc programs at various different schools. I mean, Ben Caffrobe in Edmonton Catholic has a really good whole kitchen where they teach people. They bring the parents in and give them cooking classes as well as um, as providing meals to the kids. Um, in some schools, the teachers, you know, club together and, and, and bring in the snacks. So it's a real higgledy-piggledy uh, mess of a thing. You know, the only school I've ever been to where I wanted to eat the lunch was Inglewood. I don't know if they still have this program, but they had like the neighborhood ladies would make giant turkeys and roasts of beef. And when you went there, it was like, oh, that was actual food. I could stay for this lunch. Paul <laughs> uh, Green rolled in grade five that day. <laughs> That's right. So it's just, again, this is pilots. This is targeted. And I'm not sure that that isn't the best thing. I mean, there's, you know, there's talk of a universal lunch program, which, again, I think is not the best use of resources. Uh, I think what you do is is target the kids who need that support most. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to challenge most. you on that because um, what do you do then? You put all the kids who need a lunch in a separate lunch facility and say, all these children don't get a proper lunch today. So we'll put them over here so they can get a free lunch. Or do you feed all the kids in the school? And what the school boards have been doing is targeting the inner city schools with a high percentage of kids who don't go to school with a proper lunch or any lunch at all. And I was asking about this. Like, what do you do? Do you, you say, fine, 10% of the kids have no lunch today, so those 10% will go in, in a separate facility and get a free lunch or be given to them in front, of, in front of their peers. What do you do? Well, that is, in fact, what they do. Uh, I'm talking about the, this, this program moving forward. I talked to the school uh, one this week at... Um, our Lady of Peace, Lady who say Peace, they yeah. don't do that for that very reason. For the stigma. They do not separate the kids who have no lunch from the kids who have well, a lunch. You don't have to separate Okay, them. fine, but then but, when yeah. you bring in the, – the problem is the, uh, the nutritionists I was talking to were saying you don't want to – the kids understand little Johnny over here doesn't have a lunch, and they do. Um, you can find it could be in the same classroom, but they're saying it's important for all the kids to be treated equally. So in an inner city school, even though most of them actually have a lunch, there's a big percentage who actually don't. In this program, what they're doing, of course, just quickly back, we jumped ahead of ourselves. So the program began last uh, fall, November. The government paid um, $3.5 million to 14 school boards, and they then chose their own like, two or three schools within the school board to see how it actually worked, and they said it worked out really well. And, and they feed all the kids in those schools. Yeah, but, th- but that's different from, a, I mean, the, the kids at Glenora don't need a lunch program. The Fine. kids at Crestwood don't need a lunch program. Fine. I mean, you know. uh, uh, well, I'm, I'm sure most of them don't, and I think you're right. But then the thing is, if you're targeting a school, saying an inner-city school, what they're doing now with this new program is going to have $10 million that every school board in the, in the province can then take part in their own pilot program, so two or three schools per board so not every school's having this but when the schools actually do it they say what they're doing is giving it to all the kids not picking certain kids on certain days to say here is a lunch because you didn't get one from your parents or for some reason or the lunch is crappy lunch it's, it's a chocolate bar and some chips so what they're doing on purpose giving all the children are treated equally 
for lunch, and they all sit down together to have a lunch. And so there's that social aspect of it as well, as opposed to picking and choosing the children on a given day, or saying, this little kid never gets a good lunch. So, of course, people have been responding to my columns because saying, well, yes, what you should do is make them sit separately. You know, I'm more embarrassed than oh, the no, parents. No, 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 no. I mean, nobody. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying you're saying that, Paula, but also people are saying, <laughs> But going back to the point you're raising about the different agencies in Edmonton, they're saying we already have agencies doing this. Why do we need the government, the nanny state getting involved in this? So people do get upset with the idea of paying for lunches. And so this is a question that um, we put to yeah, I asked the Premier. Brian Jean. Oh, well, I asked the Premier about it, and she said, I challenge anyone to think of a better use for $10 million. And then, uh, Graham, you followed up with Brian Jean. I asked Brian Jean what he thought of this. And... Um, he began by saying he wasn't really that uh, up on, he wasn't really up to speed on the issue, but he said two things. You know, when I, I had children and I gave them nutritious sandwiches. You're a lawyer, sweetheart. And then, yeah. <laughs> and I bet, I, and I, then, I really wonder how many of those lunches Brian Jean made his own actual self. And, and then he actually, oh, that's a sexist comment. Well, <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I made lunches for my daughters all the time. And you are a super dad. I am wonderful. Um, <laughs> but then we also said, okay, fine. Uh, what about the actual spending $10 million? And he they began dancing around it. He was talking about, you know, we've got a lot of debt. They're doing a lot of borrowing. It's important that we actually see where the money is most effectively used. And I said, but do you – are you going to even have a problem with spending money to feed hungry kids in needy schools? And he, and he said, well, you know, I'll get back to you basically in his office. That day I said to them, look, give me a quote. Otherwise, I'll be doing a column saying – Brian Jean might not be in favor of feeding young, small, hungry children. And he still came back and said, look, give us time to think about this in a, a few days or a few weeks. But what's remarkable is that the premier had a big news conference that morning, and Brian Jean either didn't want to or was not actually briefed on what she had said. I found that remarkable as well. So then it, this gives the premier the ammunition the following day to hammer him in the legislature and at a follow-up news conference to say, you know, how can Brian Jean not support feeding hungry children? This yeah, is Thomas good... Dang did his statement on that, God. didn't he? Yeah, yeah Thomas, um, he, Thomas Dang did his member's statement on Brian Jean not supporting the lunch program, <laughs> basically based on Graham's column. Yeah, and, and this is just a really good example of why you keep asking questions as they're walking away, because... That was like the third question after the final question, and he actually was leaving the scrum, and Graham just said, oh, you know, Brian, what do you think of school lunches for kids? I don't think you were expecting him to to trip over it so badly. To be flummoxed <laughs> is our word of the day. Well, and the thing is, you can see why, in a sense, because going back to Paula's comment, people are going to say, look, is this a good use of, of dollars? Because you can, people are going to say, look, the parents should be feeding children. And in fact, in many schools, most schools, a lot of schools, most kids go to school with a proper lunch. So why should we as a taxpayer being, be subsidizing an entire school because 10%, let's say, I'm making this number up, don't get a proper lunch? There are some schools that deal with this. You know, Graham's talking about you know, putting, you know, putting, putting the, the poor children in some, in some Dickensian corner. I mean, I visited elementary schools in Edmonton where they just discreetly... Hold on, I did not say that was a good idea. <laughs> no, no, no. He's accusing me of thinking it's a good idea. Yes. I mean, I've, I, 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 I've, I have visited schools where the principal just keeps in the office of, you know, a refrigerator full of emergency snacks because kids come in the morning and they arrive hungry. And, you know, so, they, you know, a lot of urban schools in Edmonton have boxes of cereal and little things of milk. And, you know, it, it's on an emergency basis. But if we're going to be talking about lunch programs, I mean, I've seen people on Twitter saying, well, you know, it's up to you know, parents, parents, parents. Well, 
L- let me break this down for you. There is no such thing as child poverty. What we have are parents who are poor. I mean, kids, I mean, it's not like the kids are poor and the parents are rich. Um, you have parents who lack the capacity to, to carry this out. So what I, I talked about a school like Ben Caffrobe in Edmonton, which has a, a, a primarily First Nations and Métis population. So they do cooking classes for the parents and for the older kids. And the whole idea is to build social capacity, not just to keep handing out granola bars. Uh, but that takes time. And I'm guessing that the same people who are opposed to free lunches for for underprivileged children are probably also opposed to the idea of spending money on, on public uh, health programs that build social capacity and teach people food literacy and teach families uh, on in economic straits how to shop efficiently and how to cook efficiently. Uh, of course, that would be better. If everybody had the social capacity to feed their children themselves, that would be much better. In the meantime, if you've got a hungry five-year-old who's crying, uh, sometimes a Band-Aid solution is a really good way to not bleed to death. Yeah, it really comes down, too, to how you see your vision of how society works. Because I was watching some of these arguments happen on social media, and some people were saying, well, you know, it's this nanny state that keeps uh, people from having kids they can't afford. And... I just can't imagine a situation in which people are saying, you know, we'd like to have one more kid, but they took out those school lunch programs now. So, you know, maybe we should, like, if they keep supporting us, it just doesn't really work that way. I don't think there's a deterrent effect here. And if the deterrent is sort of adversely affecting the kids, I mean, that's a pretty awful way to sort of, like, nudge people in a certain direction. I think what you're doing here is sort of accepting the fact that there will always be kids going to school hungry or there will always be like a certain amount of kids going to school with uh, less than ideal nutritional uh, with the the bag of chips and the chocolate bar, which actually is good training to be a journalist if you're having that for lunch <laughs> every day as a kid because that is often what I eat for lunch. Um, but I think that, I mean, you just have to accept that's going to happen. And are you going to take that problem and try to solve it or are you going to try and uh, push parents in a, in a right direction. That's just two different ways of dealing with it. But, you know, the, the bottom line is this is an investment. I mean, the whole reason I was at Inglewood School where they had the excellent lunch program in the first place, this is years ago, was the Fraser Institute had done a report about uh, which elementary schools had had marked increases in academic performance. And Inglewood, which is, you know, not the inner city, but sort of uh, Northwest Edmonton, uh, it, you know, it's a it's a mixed neighborhood, but it's got some some low income housing, as we used to call it, um, and their their academic achievement had gone way up. And so I called the principal and I went and visited the school and talked about the various interventions they were doing that had raised academic performance. And one of the things that was a clear metric that had improved academic performance was when they gave kids a substantive hot lunch. So, I mean, you could actually see the outcome. Their reading scores went up. Their math scores went up. Uh, you know, their scores on, on PATs overall went up. So if you want to know what is the value in in letting kids learn effectively by having them be well-fed, I mean, there are, there are measurable metrics that show that programs like this pay themselves back. Actually, I agree 100%. In fact, it's interesting. The response to Notley's announcement, there was a group of people, University of Alberta, and I guess some students and some groups that deal with, with things like yeah, public t- health. Yeah. Public health. And uh, they were saying they didn't spend enough. They're saying Notley promised $60 million in the election campaign. That's only spending $10 million. So you have people out there who actually deal with this, public health, saying we need more money to actually help more kids get a proper lunch. And you're right, Paula, if you actually look at the stats all over the world, and Japan has an amazing system of free lunches, n- nutrition. 
Uh, and it helps them tremendously. If kids who are growing, you know, kids who are now five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, who are growing up, up, up immensely at that point in their lives, if they're fed properly, they do a lot better in school, do a lot better emotionally and also physically, and also it helps them later on in life do better. So it, to me, there's a small investment. You can argue about the universal um, child care. I understand the argument. But when it comes to feeding children, um, I have no problem with the government spending more money on this. Let's switch gears now to some changes that were made this week to the AISH program, the Assured Income for Severely Handicapped. There was a terrible report came out from the Auditor General last year, basically slamming the program as inefficient, ineffectual, just have these long forms that were hard to fill out. At the time, Human Services Minister Irfan Sabir said, hey, we're going to do some changes. Hooray, we're going to change it. It's going to be better. And by the way, we've upgraded the website was the thing he kept oh, the, bringing up well, in question. Well, well, it's because the Auditor General, I mean, they had, I mean I'm, as I'm remembering that Auditor General's report, by the way, was, you had to like fax in the form. You, yeah. know, you might as well have had carrier pigeons. You couldn't, you couldn't <laughs> just do it online. No, you couldn't. Uh, and that's one of the changes. So this week they unveiled a host of changes that they're going to make to the program. Um, Tell us more, Emma. You know, do you even want to know, Grant? Actually, I do want to know because I'm being serious here. There's no point asking us. You did the. the I will vouch for that. There is no point in asking us about this. (laughs) (laughs) So it is a huge number of changes. And the AGE program, it's a $1.2 billion program. It gives people financial health supports, personal supports as well, uh, for severely handicapped. I think 55,000 people are on the program. More and more apply each year. Um, so basically, you can apply online soon. They've updated all of the all of the forms so that they're apparently easier to, to fill out. It used to be a two-step process. I didn't know this, but if you made an AISH application, first of all, you had to prove that you were financially eligible. So you'd have to give them all your documents, your work, your income, blah, blah, blah. Then you would have, once they said, okay, you're financially eligible, then you would have to go back and apply to see that you're medically eligible. So it was oh, this what a bizarre, mess. Yeah, it was this bizarre two-step system where you had to go and prove it twice rather than, do, so now they've, they've combined that into the one application process, which is a huge change. Um, they're also going to be tracking for something new. They're actually going to be tracking when, how many applications are turned down. They're going to be tracking timelines when it comes to weights in terms of when you apply, how long it takes you to get benefits, how long it takes you to actually, you know, be approved or not approved. Um, and they're changing the appeals process as well because there are these horror stories of people who have been through appeals that have taken two years and they still have yet to see a cent. There are horror stories as well about people who are applying for end-of-life supports and uh, basically, before they even they, they didn't get anything before they died because well, it so was taking that long. So that's not super useful if you get your end of life supports after you're dead. Not no, not super duper useful. No, no, because you, you can't take money into the afterlife, as they say. Pretty sure that's a saying, isn't it? Something like that. You can't yeah. take it with yeah. you. Can't take it with you. Thank you, Paula. Yeah. So I you, prefer yours. though. Thank you, Graham. (laughs) One cannot take one's fungible assets into the afterlife. (laughs) So obviously it's a huge problem if you die before you get your end-of-life benefits. And so they've basically completely overhauled the system and these changes are all coming in before the end of the year and then they're going to review them and then they're going to, you know, ask for feedback. And so it is a huge, huge change. Well, I think the big thing to say is this is why it's so important to have an effective Auditor General. Oh, yeah. This is the kind of thing that... A government would happily just ignore which, for years. Which did happen, <laughs> yeah. and that's the, why it's in the state it's in. Yeah, and like we've seen so many examples of this with the AG, and I, I, it is worth also noting that not every AG is this good, and it, he also has a knack for communicating 
the problems he finds. And I think we all remember the phrase aura of power to describe Alison Redford's office. And I, I imagine that was a calculated communication strategy by Sahar to kind of get that kind of phraseology out there. And he's pretty good at that. He is. He's very poetic in the way he speaks. (laughs) Even when you interview him, he's that way. Not just on paper, but the way he interviews is is very much like that as well. Now, I mean, the age program is always going to... There are always going to be people who don't feel that they got a fair shake, who feel that they should have qualified, and there are always going to be people who think that people on age are malingering. I mean, it's one of those programs that will always be a catalyst for controversy. But just streamlining the process to make it less Kafka-esque and less bureaucratic... uh, will make it fairer for everyone. And for, so, you know, it's never going to eliminate the people who moan and complain about it uh, on either side, but this at least will create some degree of transparency. It's another example of what this government's doing to change things. They're, they're, they're doing a lot of work. They're continuing to do a lot of things. Like on Monday, we're going to have them do the uh, the MGA, the uh, Municipal Government Act. The giant bill. It's so physically large. Yeah, right. and also right now, they're also uh, revamping the um, Employment Standards Code, the Labor Relations Code. They're, they've got a massive amount of work they're doing behind the scenes. They've been announced, but the work's on on. The WCB is being... Um, revamped or under review. There's a massive amount of work this government's doing in a very short space of time. They've got two more years to the next election, and you get the feeling sometimes they're doing all of this because <laughs> they think, we're not going to win the next election, so let's get everything done we could possibly do now. Uh, because, again, this is just one more example of the amount of heavy lifting this government is doing is quite phenomenal. But this isn't even about ideology. I mean, you know, in theory, any government, wherever they are on the spectrum, would want you know, when you apply for a program for the application form to work. One would think. It's kind of like when you go on vacation overseas somewhere and you're kind of like, okay, I'm in Rome for two days. I'm going to see everything. And then you run around. You're like, I'm going to see everything. I'm going to go to the Coliseum and then I'm going to here. And then that's kind of what the NDP is doing with all its reviews right now. I've never seen it actually, um, the analogy. It's, it's a good analogy. Thank you, Graham. Because things are so interesting in the Alberta government. It's like going to Rome. <laughs> On vacation, <laughs> less wine, <laughs> maybe. Mm. Three but yeah, you're right. It's not all. Happened. But it's not all ideology. You got to fix a lot of stuff. And a lot of stuff, for example, the labor code, whatever, hadn't been touched in twenty years. Yeah, or more. No, I mean, this is just this, this is just just the atrophy of a sclerotic government that lasts forty four years. It just you know stuff piles up on top of the stuff. It's a bit like my basement. <laughs> we've got Rome. We've got your basement. We really are going all over the world here today. And also this week, which was serendipitous timing when it comes to the Asia. Ace changes. Sandra Jansen put forward a private members bill, which she was working on back when she was still in the PC caucus, about the creation of a disability advocate. Uh, so somebody who will be able to help folks who can't get the supports that they need. And I spoke with her yesterday, and she was like, "It's just, it was just such great timing that the age thing came about the same the day before I could uh, do this private members bill." So that'll be an interesting thing if they actually do set up a, a disability advocate, though it does have to go through the house and there's no money in the budget for it yet. And she's estimating it'll be around $900,000. Yeah. And then the other side of that is whether or not it'll be sort of an independent officer who can do something. That's always the big question with these advocates. Yeah. Speaking of reviews, of course, there's also the labor. How many things are up for for grabs here? The bar- collective bargaining agreements? Like oh, yeah. 40 million or something? Yeah, roughly. There's Actually, last a week ago, Friday, forty-seven. S- I know, not forty million. I was, I was. <laughs> right. What's forty million? 
No, I was just coming up with a really large Did number you? to illustrate the point that oh, there are a lot I of collective. Hyper- it's hyperbole. Thank you. Hyperbole. <laughs> oh, thank you. Mm. Uh, yes, uh, seventy-four actually expired last Friday. Uh, which seventy-four is, labor contracts. Yeah, there's wow. over. There's more than four hundred in twenty seventeen that they're going to have to deal with. And oh my! I was talking to Ron Hodgins, who's the former executive director of AUP, and he was saying. You know, normally this would be a really smart strategic move for all these people to come up at the same time, but the state of the economy makes it not so great for them now. So it's just, I don't think it's, the big question to me is, will these be civil? And I talked to Guy Smith, who's the current head of AUP, and he said, what we hope is we come to the table with someone who respects the whole bargaining process. And we feel like the NDP, they've got enough people who've been in labor that they'll respect where we're coming from and respect the process. They won't try to legislate a deal like the Redford government did. Um, so that's all fair and that's all well and good, but what are the members thinking? Like if you have had 44 years of PC governments and fights and people who, I don't think Ralph Klein had a lot of love for the labor movement, uh, <laughs> and now you have an NDP government, are you thinking, finally, here we go. Like this is finally the time where we get something. Uh, and the NDP government's thinking, well, we have a $10 billion deficit, so don't get your hopes up. Um, so the possible outcome here is that they, uh, a little bit on wages, they're going to, like, I don't think they can expect too much. But there's other places that the PCs would never touch, which is like workload, uh, anti-bullying and harassment, stuff like that. Um, they may be able to find sort of creative solutions that satisfy people, but the other thing that Ron Hodgins did tell me is that when his members get a new CBA, they turn to the back page and look at how much their wages went up. That's the first thing everyone does. So there's only a certain amount of you can get away with that. Well, you know, and they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. I mean, any concession that they're perceived as giving to labor will give aid and comfort to the Wildros, Wildros and PCs or, or whatever they're going to be by then. Uh, uh, and, you know, I mean, we can just look to the example of Bob Ray in Ontario to see what happens when an NDP premier isn't perceived as being there for labor. Uh, it was the you know it was the labor forces that took Bob Ray down, and then they ended up with Mike Harris. So that how that yeah. worked out for them. And they're already getting questions about this in question period. Uh, Brian Jean is always like, Premier, promise that you will freeze public wages. Premier, promise that. And she's like, Not when we're well, going to bargain over the bargaining table, Brian. Right? We're not going to do it. It also is a whole here. issue, but she brings up the the, uh, the court decisions. You know that yeah. workers have a right to to um, collect the bargaining. In fact, we saw this. You mentioned Redford. This was the um, a few years ago when she was premier. The government imposed a wage freeze on some members of the AUPE. They went. The, the workers went to court, and the government eventually dropped it. But the courts were clearly on side with the workers. Uh, saying they have a right to collective bargaining in good faith, and the government's not bargaining in good faith. So the NDP, of course, is is very much pro-union, but also they're saying we've got the courts behind us saying you just can't impose a wage freeze on people. You must go through collective bargaining. So quickly, I've got to point out um, that Klein, it wasn't always bad under Klein. In fact, one reason why we have such high wages for nurses and teachers, and because Klein was giving them money during the good times. He was buying labor peace by giving large increases in wages. To, and, of course, he did slash and burn back in 92, 93. But when the money started to come in, he gave them a lot of money. So the workers here do have a sense that collective bargaining means higher wages. And the question now is how easy will they go on the NDP government? Yeah, it's going to be an interesting battle on that. On that. Let's go to our regular segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery. Stuart, what do you have for us this week? Uh, well, we were sitting in a Wild Rose FOIP press conference talking about Kurt Cobain, 
earlier this week, <laughs> as you do. And uh, it just kind of serendipitously, I found this story on the Seattle Times. It's called The Story of Pearl Jam from a Seattle Basement to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by nice. Bill Reeder. Um, and it kind of talks about that Seattle scene that Nirvana was part of and why all of those bands sort of hated Pearl Jam. Because Pearl Jam wasn't sort of a cool Nirvana band. They were a band that wanted to be famous and sell records. And that was super uncool in Seattle at the time. But yeah. it's a great read. Uh, and this is about politics. <laughs> yes. Politics How? of rock music. Oh, okay. Cola. Sure. Oh, it, it doesn't okay. need to be about politics. <laughs> it's just a good read. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Paula, what do you got for us? Is it also about Pearl Jam? Uh, no, it is, <laughs> it is not about Pearl Jam or Toe Jam or any other kind of jam. Um, it is a really interesting piece from Vox this week about why the alt-right favors single-payer health care. And it's an absolutely fascinating deep dive into the alt-right movement's uh, come, to, come to Tommy Douglas moment about... Uh, <laughs> About, about the value of a single payer healthcare system and how uh, and how this might inform uh, Trump's uh, Trump's healthcare policy. A really interesting and completely. Uh, it was not anything that I had ever thought that you know Richard Spencer and I would ever agree about anything ever. It's a little bit spooky. <laughs> For once, I'm actually looking south of the border as well uh, to a piece in The Nation. It's a really interesting read. This political theorist predicted the rise of Trumpism. His name was Hunter S. Thompson. And it's a look back at uh, Hunter S. Thompson's book, Hell's Angels, in which he kind of goes gonzo with the Hell's Angels. And it examines the links between what he was saying back then 50 years ago about the belief of this kind of underbelly and how they don't feel supported by you know the university educated elite and they were going to really make moves against it and how he kind of predicted what was happening what was going to end up happening electing trump into power really 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 interesting it's by susan mcwilliams i liked it very much graham okay um this weekend's the anniversary of amy ridge the battle of amy ridge a couple of things paula like you, you reposted a really nice article but you're uh, husband's grandfather yes, who fought there. Yes, he was at Vimy. And that was on, it's on Twitter, right? Uh, well, it's, it's on our website. Okay. Yeah. No, and it's a really good read. Yeah. And quickly, there's a new book out, which I'm going to buy this weekend. I've not read it yet, but it's got really good reviews. It's called uh, Vimy, The Battle and the Legend by Tim Cook. It looks at um, the battle, of course, and also the memorial uh, afterwards. And I, I visited that about 10 years ago, and it was an amazingly moving memorial. So that's my good thing. Right on. Stuart, Paula, Graham, and Sean Butts. Thank you for being here to film some of this as well and put it online at edmontonjournal.com. We can find all of the episodes of the Press Gallery. You can also subscribe to our SoundCloud channel, iTunes and TuneIn Radio. Uh, we may not have one next week because it's going to be Good Friday. Hey. And you're away. And I'm going to be in Jordan. So either we'll be here next week. With a guest host. Or we won't. Or we won't. So um, oh, I guess you'll just have to suspense. check your feeds or something. <laughs> whatever you kids do with your technology. Uh, But definitely in the next couple of weeks, (laughs) we'll be back with a new episode of The Press Gallery.